Welcome to episode 18 of my podcast. In this episode, we'll talk about the well-known philosopher Anthony Flew and his 1972 article, The Presumption of Atheism. For one of my courses, I've written a paper on this article, and I will be making heavy use of the paper for this episode. But let's start with Anthony Flew. Flew was born in 1923, and he passed away in 2010. He was the son of a Methodist minister and became a prominent atheist philosopher. Late in life, he became a deist. I'd like to quote a few things from the Britannica article on Anthony Flew. As a teenager, he decided that the traditional Christian concept of a good God was inconsistent with the presence of evil in the world, and thus he adopted atheism. After service in the Royal Air Force during World War II, Flew studied philosophy at St. John's College, Oxford, where his teacher was the English linguistic philosopher Gilbert Ryle. At Oxford, Flew was particularly influenced by critiques of traditional arguments for the existence of God and other religious phenomena by the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume. In 1950, Flew delivered a short paper, Theology and Falsification, before Oxford's Socratic Club, a salon then presided over by the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis. Flew argued that theological utterances about God's nature, presence, power, or goodness are meaningless because there is no conceivable evidence that would refute them. In this episode we will not be talking about theology and falsification, although that might be interesting for another episode, but instead about Flew's 1972 article called The Presumption of Atheism. In what follows I'll make heavy use of my paper and basically be quoting myself. So let us start. In the introduction of his article, so I'm of course talking about the presumption of atheism, Flew writes that he wants to examine the contention that the debate about the existence of God should properly begin from a presumption of atheism, that the onus of proof must lie on the theist. Flew goes on to make a distinction between positive atheism and negative atheism. A positive atheist for Flew is someone who asserts the non-existence of God, while a negative atheist is someone who is simply not a theist. It is along these lines that Flew wants the presumption of atheism to be understood. The presumption of atheism is the presumption of negative atheism. After this, Flew starts to compare his presumption of atheism with the presumption of innocence operative in legal settings. Roughly, for Flew, the presumption of atheism is similar to the presumption of innocence in that it 1. insists on proof in a sense which allows for any sort of sufficient reason, 2. is defeasible and is thus not identical to a categorical assumption, 3. is procedural and non-substantive, but not trivial, and 4. is such that it can be defeated or overcome without undermining the use of the presumption. For Flew, it is clear that the presumption of atheism is not the same thing as the presumption of positive atheism. He makes clear that while the former assumes no conclusion to the debate about God's existence, and is therefore, quote, non-substantive, the latter would preclude a theistic conclusion. It is thus plausibly understood to be indefeasible, and hence different from the defeasible presumption of atheism. Being indefeasible, the assumption of positive atheism could, if adopted, only lead to a positive atheistic 
conclusion to the God debate, which is not the case with the presumption of atheism, which can, in principle, be overcome. A key aspect, consequence, or correlate of Flew's presumption of atheism is that the theist in the God debate has certain unique obligations or at least needs to do certain things if she is to overcome the presumption of atheism. At least given the presumption of atheism, she has the burden of proof, and this involves her having to 1. Introduce a concept of God, 2. Defend it against any objections to its coherence, and 3. Provide a sufficient reason for believing that God, thus conceived of, exists. Flew is less clear about the role of the negative atheist within the debate. She does not have the burden of proof and certainly does not need to prove the non-existence of God, but she may need to provide objections to the claims and arguments of the theist. So just to pause here for a moment, it's important to notice that if the presumption of atheism is adopted in the God debate, then theists have quite a lot of things to do. They have to introduce a concept of God, they have to defend it against objections to its coherence, and also need to provide a sufficient reason to believe in God thus conceived of. Okay, let's go on. A case for the presumption of atheism is also provided by Flume. He argues roughly that in a debate, the proposing party, and not the opposing party, has the burden of proof, and that the presumption of negative atheism, which determines that the theist has the burden of proof in the God debate, and that the debate should start from the position of negative atheism, is justified on the basis of the aims or goals of the God debate, which entail that good grounds for believing in God need to be presented within the context of the debate, and until that happens, we can only reasonably take the position of the negative atheist or the agnostic, at least within the context of the debate. Alright, just to pause here for a second, now I'll start to quote some passages from the critical part of my paper, so more like the critique of flu, and I will especially focus on Flew's case for the presumption of atheism. Alright, let's continue. Let us now turn to Flew's case for the presumption of atheism. Aspects of Flew's case can be difficult to understand, but it is clear that he tries to justify the presumption of atheism with reference to aims or goals. Since the procedure is concerned with the debate about God's existence, it is plausible that Flew would attempt to justify it with reference to the goals of the God debate and argue that is what he attempts to do in the article. Unfortunately, here the going gets a bit tough. Flew seems to say that one of the goals of the debate is discovering, quote, whether it is possible to establish that the word God does in fact have application. He does not provide much by way of argument for this being an aim of the debate, but let us grant that it is and move on. Rather than immediately spelling this establishing of God's existence out in terms of the provision of a sufficient reason for believing in God's existence, Flew starts to explain it in terms of knowing and knowledge. Quote, to establish must here be either to show that you know or to come to know. We may have our doubts about this. Couldn't God's existence be established without someone showing that she knows God exists and someone coming to know that God exists? But let us leave this aside. Flew goes on to make a few minor points and then writes the following crucial passage. It is by reference to this inescapable demand for grounds that the presumption of atheism is justified. If it is to be established that there is a God, then we have to have good grounds for believing that this is indeed so. Until and unless some such grounds are produced, we have literally no reason at all for believing. And in that situation, the only reasonable posture must be that of either the negative atheist or the agnostic. 
So the onus of proof has to rest on the proposition. All right, so that was a quote from Flume. And then I write, this arguably is Flume's main argument for the presumption of atheism in the essay. Note that he does not explicitly start reasoning from the aforementioned aim of the God debate. Indeed, reasoning plausibly to the presumption of atheism from that aim may not be an easy task. Moreover, Flew's argument is informal, and if we take only what he explicitly says, we do not have a deductively valid argument. So this is an interesting thing about Flew's article, is that he doesn't offer a deductive argument for the presumption of atheism. Let's continue. Additional points of criticism can be offered. First, it need not be true that all the members of Flew's vague we have no good reasons for believing in God prior to being presented with such reasons in the debate. Some might have come into the debate with such reasons, or might have come up with such reasons themselves during the debate. It arguably does not follow from the fact that no such reasons have been presented that none of the we have good grounds for believing in God's existence. If Lou's entire case for the presumption of atheism depends on none of the we having good reasons, then surely he is now in trouble. How will he establish that none of them have such reasons, even if they are all, for some reason, negative atheists? Some of them may have a sufficient reason to believe in God's existence, if that by itself is not sufficient for someone to be a theist. Alright, so this is a tough part of the paper. One of the things that I more or less point out here is that it does not follow from no reasons being presented that no one has sufficient reasons to believe in God. Alright, but let's continue. But let us grant for the sake of argument that unless the we are presented with such good grounds in the debate, they do not have them. Let us also grant that if the we don't have such grounds, they have no reasons at all to believe in God. Even so, Flew is arguing still in trouble. For how does it follow from the we not having any reasons to believe in God, that there should be a presumption of atheism in the debate, and that theists in the debate have the burden of proof outlined in the essay? It won't do to merely point out that the we lack reasons to believe in God, for an obligation for theists to do something about this and to offer them a sufficient reason to believe in God only follows from this given particular moral frameworks, nor will it do merely to refer to the aforementioned aim of the debate, because that arguably allows for alternative procedures on which the theists do not have Flew's burden of proof. After all, a theist presenting a sufficient reason to believe in God is, it would seem, not the only way to solve the question of whether or not God's existence can be established. If such a reason were provided by a negative atheist, then presumably the issue would also be resolved. Similarly, if a positive atheist provided a sufficient reason to believe that no sufficient reason to believe in God could be provided, then presumably the issue would be resolved as well. One of the points here is roughly that even if the goal of the God debate is establishing whether or not God's existence can be established, you can't merely appeal to this goal, because the goal itself is in fact compatible with different procedures, not just the procedure on which a theist has to introduce a concept of God, defend it against objections to its coherence, provide a sufficient reason for believing in God, etc., etc., as I show in my paper, there are different ways of reaching this goal that do not require the theist to do these sorts of things. Now let us continue. Nor will it do to appeal merely to the principle that whoever claims that God exists must provide a sufficient reason to believe in God. For, apart from the disputableness of this principle, the God debate could be structured as a devil's advocate debate, in which the negative atheists advance the proposition that God exists. 
here one of my points is roughly that it also won't do to merely appeal to the principle that whoever claims that God exists must provide a sufficient reason to believe in God's existence. We can have questions about the principle itself, but moreover, you can structure the debate in such a way that the theist is not the one claiming that God exists. Alright, now, the final passage. The trouble is perhaps that Flew has incorporated more legal elements into his proposal for the God debate than he realizes, acknowledges, or defends. Flew's we is plausibly interpreted to be the equivalent of a judge and or jury in a court operating with a presumption of innocence, Flew's presumption of atheism. If their legal presumption is to be overcome, the prosecution, Flew's theist, needs to present them with a sufficient reason to believe something, that God exists. But why should all this be the case in the God debate? Why should it be closely modeled on such a court? Arguably, Flew does not provide us with satisfactory answers to these questions. Alright, so that was the last passage I would like to quote from my paper. Now I'll just end with some closing remarks. First of all, and this is related to the passage I just read, if you go and read Flew's essay yourself, you may find it helpful to approach it with the theory that Flew wanted to model the God debate on a court operating with a presumption of innocence, and that he didn't just incorporate the presumption of innocence into his vision for the God debate, but other legal elements as well. Alright, the second remark is that I myself am quite skeptical of the idea that theists in general are under some obligation to provide a sufficient reason to believe in God's existence. I do think it's helpful if some theists try hard to provide good reasons to believe in God's existence. And it can also be helpful for theists and atheists and others to work together to see if there are such good reasons, to critique various reasons, to offer various reasons. But in such a project, it need not be the case that only theists advance arguments for God's existence and atheists do nothing or just critique arguments they could also have a more constructive role and think of ways in which the arguments could be improved or made more convincing. And that would be quite compatible with the goal of the project. I certainly think it is desirable that reasons to believe in the existence of God are presented and scrutinized. Lastly, although I don't find Flew's article completely convincing, it is a thought-provoking article and you may find it interesting to read it yourself. And perhaps in my case, it has pushed me a little more in Flu's direction. But in any case, I hope you found this episode interesting. And perhaps in a future episode, I can talk about Flu's paper, Theology and Falsification. Thank you for listening, and until next time.